Let's have a look, shall we, if we can get it up on the screen. We'll look at the first six verses. That's what we're looking at. He talks about, verse 1, he talks about elders. In verse 5, he talks about, uh, in the same way, you who are younger, and then all of you. Without actually saying it, Peter is talking about the church. He's talking about what it means in this situation to belong and to be a part of the church. And he's talking then uh, about structure, about how the church functions. Elders, those who are uh, presbyteros is the Greek word that's used there. It's uh, it's a word which is describing uh, old men. (laughs) Uh, That's the word that's used. Um, No comments, thank you. We'll chat at the door. Um, Old man. It's at that sense of leadership and and, uh, care. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? And I guess for us today in 21st century autonomous world, the idea of being part of something which has structure and organization and leadership to it immediately feels maybe a little bit uncomfortable. So let's think about that this afternoon. I find it really interesting that at this point in the letter, Peter takes us to this structure. Why does he? A little bit of a diversion. I was listening to a really... Any of you literary types uh, might have heard of the writer Ford, Maddox Ford, the good soldier, parades, and uh, were his major uh, writings. He died at the beginning Uh, of the Second World War, and he was writing about his experiences in the First World War. Uh, Parades End, this person who was giving a fascinating presentation, Um, if you've done English at a higher level, I'm sure you'd be uh, into this kind of thing. It was relatively new for me. Uh, Talking about the, the importance of the way little aspects of the story build. And she was seeing how important... Uh, helmets were in the development of the story. And so we've got this great big story going on and she's picked out headwear as an important thing that goes on through the story. Uh, But what she actually identified was something which I've heard in descriptions but never really understood. In the First World War, the soldiers, British and Allied soldiers particularly, those supplied by the British government, were, were really quite scathing about the helmets that were provided. You know that kind of dome with the peak all the way around? Uh, in fact, they were scathing because of the way that it didn't sit well on the head, didn't offer much protection. It was actually made to be basically cheap and effective to make in big quantities. It, it just kind of did an adequate kind of job. It was not really fantastic, did a kind of job. They used to laugh at the fact that somebody would be wearing it on the back of the head, somebody had come over their eyes, and the straps never fitted properly, uh, compared to the German helmet. You know, the German helmet, which kind of sweeps down around, gives protection to the neck, protection to the ears, designed for protection, designed for warfare, Even when you compare the two, you see something in the German helmet which looks like it's serious and it's uh, it's aggressive and it's going to win the war. And then you look at the Allied helmet 
hat, and they actually stopped calling it a helmet. They called it a tin hat. You've heard of that, I'm sure, those of you who've heard a little bit about the war. They called it a tin hat because they were comparing what they had as a tin hat compared to the real thing, which was the German helmet. But what was going on in, um, in uh, Parade's End, which incidentally, apparently it's been recently, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch played the lead part uh, in a drama which has been on TV, I think. What they were really commenting on was the attitude of the leadership, the attitude of the hierarchy towards those who were out in the trenches. The attitude was really, do you know what? Whatever's quick, cheap to make, looks like it might do a job. That was, the, that was what kind of filled the thinking of the soldiers when they compared these two helmets. And, and as soon as that was suggested to me in this presentation, I thought, there is so much more in that, isn't there? It's not, it, the tin hat idea is not anymore just the way of describing a helmet. It's a statement about the attitude of those who were leading the war to those who were in the trenches. Stick a bit of tin on the head, put a bit of a leather strap on, jobs are good, and how many of those can we make in an hour? Let's get the war machine rolling. Peter is saying, you guys, to this young church, he's saying, you are in a spiritual war. He's saying, that's what is going on. You are not to rise up. We've seen again the repeated message in this conflict, the attitude that you are to have is first and foremost one of service and goodness and kindness. In other words, your response when you are opposed is to confound by your mercy and your compassion. It's a remarkable thing that he says in this letter. And it's, I would suggest to you, if, if you've looked down the history of the church, and you might even this afternoon be really uncomfortable with the idea of Christianity, precisely because you look back over history and you see so many terrible things that have been done in the name of the church. I would suggest that one of the things that is absent in history is a true embracing of the letter that Peter wrote. That's what went wrong in the church when it became a political power, when it became something about gaining money and gain, gaining land and all of those kind of things. It lost sight of who we are. A self-sacrificing, humble, broken, yet loving and compassionate and gentle people. That's what the church should be. That's what the church very often isn't. And that's what we need to re-inhabit today as a church. We continue to need to re-inhabit that space of that humble, broken, compassionate, loving, joy-filled community of people who are in the, in the wider community confounding the idea of injustice by doing good. So how does it work? Well, Peter at this point says... Just those six verses, let's take the helicopter ride over the top of them. The first thing he says to all of us, one of the ways that you do that 
in the face of opposition, in the face of conflict, one of the ways that you do that is actually by being part of the church. That, that's just a helicopter ride, isn't it? That's going, it's not picking out any individual comments in any of the verses. It's actually just saying, from the point of view of the way this letter develops, in the middle of persecution, don't lose sight of your belonging. Don't lose sight of the fact that you are part of the community of God's people. Why is that important? Why was it important back then? Well, if you are facing persecution, if you are facing the possibility of losing income, family, property, wealth, position, whatever it might be, isn't there a tendency to look at your life and say, one of the reasons I'm losing these things is because I belong to that. And therefore, the way to stop losing these things is to not belong to this. Uh, to, to not worry about the fact that I belong, to separate out myself, because after all, I, I'm a believer in Jesus. I, I am, I, I, I'm still not, I'm not letting go of my faith. I, can't I, can't I content, continue that? Can't I maintain that and not face the challenge of, of persecution by just going below the radar? And Peter says... Don't do that, essentially, with these few verses. He says, when that issue arises in your community, don't lose sight of who you belong to. In actual fact, in a way, what he's saying is, the idea of belonging to this, the idea of being part of this, is the very way in which you are going to maintain, you are going to continue, you are going to be nurtured in your faith. I want to say it really clearly this afternoon, folks. I've had so many conversations down through the years where people uh, in the middle of challenge, in the middle of difficulty, have a sense in which it would be easier just not to be part of the church. You know, maybe you've fallen out with somebody in the church. And the reason for that is because we're all sinful people. And the church doesn't function the way it ought to. And the church isn't what it ought to be on many occasions. And they said, do you know what? I'll just go and do my privatized religion thing. And the result of that, and it's, a, it's a, a picture which has been used so many times for generation upon generation, but it is so helpful, is quite simply think of the idea of a coal in the fire. When the coal is in the fire and it's surrounded by other burning coals, it keeps burning. When the piece of coal drops out of the fire, mm, you're too young to remember coal fires. It's all log burners now, isn't it? Imagine a bonfire. You know, a piece of wood drops off the bonfire. What happens? It cools. It doesn't necessarily continue to burn. What Peter is saying is not an imposition, stay part of the church. It's because he's a pastor who cares for the people and he says, I want to see you spiritually thrive. I want to see you spiritually grow. I want to see you spiritually nurtured and developed. And therefore, when the problems come, when the challenges come, do not drop out of the fire. 
Stay in it. Stay in there, surrounded by those who will help you and encourage you. So how do we help and encourage each other in that situation? Well, the first thing that we see in verse 1 and 2, we see this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So there he's saying, here we are, we have this responsibility. He's been given this responsibility by Jesus who, was the, who he witnessed the suffering of Jesus. And he says, I am a fellow elder. Uh, I am a fellow uh, shepherd, carer of the flock. And I'm doing this from a distance. I'm not in Asia Minor. I'm writing you this letter. What I'm doing is my caring step for you. My writing is my pastoring and caring. But you're on the ground. You're there. You're in the situation. And I'm writing to you because there's some of you who are also there and you are caring and you are uh, looking after, shepherding the flock. He goes on to say, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Let's have a a few uh, thoughts around this. Being a shepherd. Isn't it interesting? There's many metaphors that are used in the New Testament for our Christian lives. But the metaphor that is used repeatedly for caring and shepherding and pastoring and leading a church is just that. It's the pastor. It's the gentle shepherd. It's the carer. What does does that involve? You might have seen on TV the idea of, um, of, of shepherding a flock in a hostile environment, in a wilderness kind of environment, in, in, in not the kind of green rolling hills of Wales kind of shepherd, the kind of shepherd that's out in the kind of rough terrain where finding the next patch of, of, of water and the next healthy grass is the job of the shepherd. What he's doing is he's out there and he is caring and he is not distant from the flock. He's not out there somewhere else saying, "Uh, guys over there, I know it's rough over there, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw you some cheap tin hats of spiritual care. He's actually saying, no, I am right there in it with you. I am with you. Uh, Peter makes that very claim by saying, I am sharing, in a sense, the suffering of Christ. He's saying part of the job of being a a pastor, a carer, a shepherd, an elder, all of those descriptions of leading the church of Jesus in in its individual uh, congregations is that we are willing to be suffering servants, just like Jesus. That's what the picture uh, and the power of the picture that Peter paints at this point in time. We've had an amazingly powerful um, example this afternoon of that final line. 
not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. We've had one example this past week of being in a leadership responsibility and doing exactly the opposite of that in FIFA, haven't we? What a powerful example in FIFA of people who are there to do what? To serve the glorious game. To nurture those at grassroots level who are entering into this wonderful sport which is able to be such an equalizer of people. Build people into compassionate, healthy communities where it doesn't matter whether you live in sub-Saharan Africa or East Asia or Europe or North America. There's something so beautifully leveling about this. Because we're all in it together and I am here to serve you in this great venture. Oh, and by the way, while I'm at it, I'll just make sure that I raise myself above everybody else by creaming off huge amounts of money and personal gain. And below the surface, we see that there is no intention whatsoever to be eager to serve. There is every intention to be eager to gain. And I want to just encourage you to be wise in how you assess, in the widest sense, leaders in the church. For the church to call to account and to challenge and to say, that is not right for us to be seeing preposterous gain and self-serving leaders in the church to hold us to account, to hold pastors to account and to say how amazing it is when the church is filled with people who are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of others and for the glory of the gospel because we participate and we inhabit the very suffering of Jesus. What a contrast. What a countercultural perspective Peter is putting on what it means to be a leader in the church. Totally different to what we would see in human terms, generally speaking. He goes on to say, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fade away. Not lording it over, but keeping those entrusted to you. What have we got? That's a good question, isn't it? As leaders, what have we got? What have we got to give to the church? I'll tell you what we've got. We've got the glorious amazing, incredible, wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not much else. It's what we've got. It's something which is so incredibly precious 
that I would say that the responsibility of elders in the church is to create an environment which says, folks, this is what the gospel is. Uh, And this is what we want to share with you. And this is what we want to protect imposters from who might come in and might say, that's not the gospel. This is the gospel. It's about financial gain. It's about worshipping these other gods. It's about all of those other things. That's the job of the pastor. You know when that great shepherd of the Old Testament was, was David? In picture terms, he's got this little flock. And he says, to, um, he says to Saul, when I was a shepherd, as a shepherd boy, when he's facing Goliath, he says, I, I've killed a bear. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of the kind of fierce opposition that can come in and disrupt the flock. How, how are you disrupted? How am I disrupted? In, when, when the only thing that we have is the gospel of Jesus, what disrupts us is when another gospel comes in. It's what disrupts us. When another gospel comes in and unsettles and, and takes us away from the true perspective of seeing Jesus, that's the kind of opposition that the job of the elder is to protect against. It's interesting in the New Testament, the areas in the letters where, where the writers become really kind of confrontational and aggressive uh, is when there's the danger of false teaching coming into the church. When there is the danger of the flock being disrupted. Because the kind of care is to say and to preserve and to keep that which has been passed down, this entrusted, beautiful possession, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that the message is that we don't point to the leaders in the church, we point to the great shepherd. Why is that important? Peter says. Because there's going to be a day when the chief shepherd appears. That's why this is relevant to every one of us in the room this afternoon. Whether we're believers in Jesus or not, one of the things that we need to come to terms with, with what the Christian message says, is that that great good news which has been entrusted to the church is important because it prepares for a day when that great chief shepherd returns. It's a day of great joy for those who are part of the flock. And it's a terrifying day for those who are not part of the flock. That is part of the message of the gospel. That's not really fully contained in here, is it? It's just hinted at. What's hinted at is that Jesus is going to return. And he says, I think he says, that chief shepherd is going to return so that you'll be reminded through all of your trials, through all of your sufferings, that actually the shepherds that you've had around us, that, around you, that have been pastoring you for the past few years while you've been on your journey of, of faith in this world, that actually they're nothing in, in, in relative terms to the great shepherd who's actually been looking after you right the way through. Right the way through. That's the great shepherd who's been caring for this flock. That's why we as an eldership are desperately concerned, not that we are seen to lead, but rather that we are seen to be faithful to that great shepherd. Because that great shepherd is going to return. And then do you know what? All of the challenges 
of the flock being threatened. That goes. It's gone. It's going to come a day when, when there is no more temptation, when there's no more threat, when there's no more challenge, when the great shepherd returns and we are all safe. It's a great day, isn't it? That's what he says to the elders among you. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? Well, Peter says, here's how you should respond. First, he says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. And then he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. So he's talking about if, if, if Christian lead churches have leaders who have been appointed uh, who are humbly seeking to protect and to care and to nurture with all of their faults, with all of their failures, with all of their inadequacies, with all of the moments when they don't look very humble. That's, that's another part of this. There's moments where we don't look very humble and we're a mess and we need to improve. But when that is the general direction in which we're heading, then equally, Give yourself to that. Be humble to that as well. That's interesting, isn't it? He identifies two groups of people. Those who are young and then all of you. I think there's a tendency, isn't there? In, in, um, and I remember it. Uh, it's okay. It's, this, it's, a dim, it's a dimming memory. But I remember being young and, and hot-headed and kind of really kind of uh, positive and of my own opinions and sure of which way to go and all of that. It's one of the great traits of youth. It's an amazing thing. It's a fantastic thing. It's got a huge host of benefits. It's all the kind of things that shake up and destabilize and make old blokes start to rethink and, and reassess and make old ideas become relevant for today. But there is a tendency to be dismissive of life experience, of that kind of being through the process, being faithful, being here before, albeit with a different mask, mask on. And one of the tendencies, and I remember it so painfully myself, in my own attitudes, one of my attitudes, I guess, when I look back, was to be dismissive of that because I'm so clear on how it ought to be. It's one of those challenges of generations in a church, isn't it? And what Peter is saying is, I know what we're like as human beings. I know what we're like. So the way to deal with that is for both of us to be humble towards each other. He's not coming down on one side or the other in any of the debates, is he? He's not saying strategically you should do what the young say or you should always do what the old say. He's actually saying if you inhabit humility towards each other, then you can work out all sorts of ways forward. Can't you? Isn't it incredibly wise what he's saying? Isn't it astounding what he's saying? He's saying, I know that the church is going to be filled with those who've been round the block and those who think that they know the next corner. And he says the way to deal with that is to be compassionate and kind and humble towards each other. And when you inhabit that, 
you are inhabiting a really healthy place. A place where you can really move forward. And what's more, a place where you can example to this wider culture a totally different way of being. Where you don't rely on one or the other, you actually move forward together. And there's a tendency, isn't there, that when you've been around the block a few times, you're convinced you know the way. You're convinced you know which way it is. The only problem is they've changed the route. They've put a bollard in place and you can't go round the way you always have gone round. The route has changed and the old tend not to notice that and they keep on walking against the bollard. Well, that's what we keep doing. Uh, and so the inhabiting together of humility allows us to all move forward, which Peter goes on to say, and therefore all of you close your, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Imagine if we lived in a church where that was just inhabited all the time. Imagine if you visited a church where that was uh, as it was. Imagine if the wider world was lived out like that all of the time. Isn't what Peter is suggesting here a dramatically different way of approaching a community of people together? Why? Why is that? Because what he's saying is, we're all together. We are all together, ultimately, not in some hierarchical structure, we are all as one under the great chief shepherd. It's where we actually all are. So don't forget it. You know the other great news? That great shepherd doesn't send us into spiritual battle with ill-fitting tin hats on. He doesn't. He sends us into spiritual battle Perfectly equipped. Perfectly equipped by His presence, by His indwelling, uh, and providing for us, as it were, uh, hospitals in the battlefield. So that when we're feeling the pain of wounds from this spiritual battle, we come back and we inhabit the battlefield hospital of the church, where we are re-equipped and re-invigored and cared for and nurtured and protected and developed so that we can continue on the journey. Because one day, it will all end.